doing those hand motions. <laughs> that was that was challenging. <laughs> All right. Well, what a blessed morning. It's good to be with God's people, isn't it? Somebody, people often will ask me just in passing, well, how's the church doing? And that's a that's an interesting question because uh, I think the normal response is often, well, you know, our numbers are growing and baptisms are happening and and that's certainly what we want to be the case. But, you know, I think the best answer is we have a sweet fellowship. And uh, God's Spirit is among us. And God's people do a lot. I mean, you think about what Miss D was bringing up here. Um, and the ministry through that just one thing at that time of year that goes on all year, as you know. But the number of lives that are touched is really amazing when you multi- do the multiplication. And uh, so praise the Lord that you have willing hearts to serve him. And so you should just rejoice in what the Lord is doing uh, through such a small body, really, compared to the world. Uh, here we are just doing so much, and uh, to him be the glory. Anyway, all right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at his word for just a few moments now. Father, we thank you, as we were just saying, for your great goodness to us as we uh, watch the children and we think about all that's going to be happening in the next couple months with the shoebox ministry and some of the changes just uh, physically around here that are needed after time. Lord, we've just been so blessed by you for so many years to be a church in this community, and we want that to continue. You've put it in our hearts to just keep pressing forward and keep doing what you've called us to do. Lord, we need your help every step of the way. We want to follow you, not get ahead of you. But Lord, mostly we need your word in our hearts. And so we thank you that you've left it for us, this thing called the Bible, that you give to us that we might know you. And so as we do every week, we pray that you'd help us to discern what it is you want us to know today and uh, that we may take it with us as we go out these doors into a world that so desperately needs you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for remembering that we need you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're coming to a very, very powerful section of Matthew's gospel. So find your place in Matthew chapter 4, and then I'm going to have you stand as we read just the first part of this. I every week really feel like we're going to get a lot further than we do, um, but then I just again realize that there's just, there's just too much to go through we don't want to miss. I've titled the message today, A Time to be Tested, A Time to be Tested. You have a little page of notes on the back, and you'll see my basic outline there, which I'll go through in just a minute. But so you don't get too settled, let's stand up in honor of the Lord's word, and let's just read through these first four verses in really a very, very, again, a powerful section. Matthew writes for us, And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. That's as far as I want to try to get today, but let me just give you, as you're looking at the back of your bulletin, if you have one, an outline for all of these verses in this section. It goes all the way down to verse 11. Number one, we're going to say it this way, is that God often allows and even purposefully brings on times of testing for us. And I'll explain that in just a minute. 
And then verses 2 through 4, what we're going to see today is that testing usually, and I say this usually, challenges us in our flesh. That's usually where we're first tested. Then we're going to see how testing will often challenge us to presume on God. That's going to be the next set of verses, 5 through 7. And then testing often challenges our faith in God often challenges our faith in God, and that will finish us up. We'll get to those next time. Today we want to try to cover these first few verses here. <clears throat> now let's just go back to our context. Remember Howie and Debbie were with us last week, and that was a wonderful time, but let's get our minds set back in gear on where we have been in all of this. You remember now Matthew is writing to us about Jesus being the king of the Jews. That's his whole uh, plan, his whole theme. And he did, has done that so far by laying out Jesus' genealogy, and we spend quite a bit of time on that. He has given to us his miraculous birth as God come in the flesh in just an amazing way. You remember the gifts that the Magi brought to him from a distant land and how that proved the same point. And then we saw how Herod the Great attempted to kill the baby Jesus. And uh, we saw his baptism through John the Baptist and then the recognition as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. All of those things that we've studied through in the text of Scripture are purposeful by the Holy Spirit to help us see these very, this very truth, that this truly is not just man, but this is God's Son who is fully God come in the flesh to be the King of the Jews. Now, because of these things, these great events and I'll say this with us as well, testing often comes on the heels of something great happening in our lives. Jesus, we're seeing that right now here, is that he's had these miraculous and wonderful things expressed about him. His life is now into adulthood. But now we're right a reading where he is taken by the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that in a minute, into the wilderness to be tested, right on the heels of these great things. And so just remember... Uh, that we really need to keep our armor on fully. I was just talking to a brother yesterday in the Lord, and he said, I never go out of my house without making sure that I've put on the full armor of God because testing is right around the corner. We just never know how God is going to use it and then how Satan is going to try to tempt us to do evil in the midst of what God may be doing in our lives. So we've got to make sure we're really, really paying attention. We have to be on our guard. <clears throat> now, understanding that in this, Jesus needed no testing in himself. Okay, well, let's just be clear about that. This was to prove who he was, but as God, he didn't need any testing. He could handle anything that Satan brought his way, and praise his name for that. He's the only one that could do that. So this is not so much for Jesus as it is about Jesus. What we're really going to see through this whole section is that Jesus is being brought before the enemy of God to prove that he can handle whatever temptation the enemy of God will throw at him. He proves himself to be our God. Unlike you and me, we have no ability to do that without his help. And so again, just keep those thoughts in the back of your mind as we're going through all of this, that Jesus went through all of this fully for his sake, but really more so for our sake, so that we would see him for who he is and so we would have great confidence in him because, again, in this life we have a lot of challenges. I mean, again, I like to think about this week that we've just come through. That's why I opened the service this morning the way that I did is because I know your lives as well as I know mine that you have challenges. 
There are days you have good spiritual days. There are days where you don't have such good spiritual days. Some days are real high. Some days are not real high. Some days your faith is weak. Some days you're really challenged by what you say that you believe. And we all understand that. But praise the Lord, we have a God who can help us with all of this type of temptation. In fact, just the other day, I was telling my wife this, I was driving early in the morning to go downtown and I was just processing the things of life mainly, and I hope you won't laugh at me for this, but uh, just to give you a little bit of my weakness, I was processing this whole mortality thing. As I'm getting older, I realize that the end of my days are getting closer than they were years ago. You know, it used to be when you could sit back and say, i got lots of years ahead of me. And I know some of your older ones are saying, yeah, you haven't a clue what you're talking about. And I know that's true, too. But I can surely see those days being very, very short. And I realize that much of what I want to accomplish in this life is rapidly coming to the finish line. I can see the line out there. And you say, well, how can you see it? Well, I'm only seeing it from a spiritual sense because God says man's days are about 70 years. A few more if God gives him strength. But, you know, uh, some of you are well into your bonus years. But God says man's years are about 70 Okay, so, I mean, let's put it in perspective, right? That's, what we, that's where we are. And all that was kind of upsetting to me, just being honest. I have big plans that I want to accomplish in this life for us as a church. I want us to see God do great and mighty things. I'm not ready to, to leave this earth. Now, that's all God's business. But all this was just kind of resonating in my mind, and, and I, I just realized that some of the things that... that I may want out of my own desires may not be God's plans. I don't know. I can only follow what I believe God to be doing in my heart, and certainly it would be to rescue souls. That's why we put these banners up here, as ugly as they are. You know, we want to remind ourselves that we want to reach souls. We want to do everything we can to be united in a body in every way that we can be united so that we can be a healthy church. And all those thoughts, again, caused me to start thinking about why we as people get upset over things in this life? And I think the simple answer is, is because we typically want certain things. You understand what I'm saying? We want certain things to occur a certain way. We want them to be a certain way, but it's not necessarily what God wants. And so there becomes some conflict there. We feel the conflict between God's spirit and and our fleshly spirits. Again, but the truth is, God says nothing in his word about fulfilling what we want. Do you hear that? I mean, these were thoughts going in my mind. I said, Lord, I'm not going to be selfish. I'm going to share these with the church Sunday because I want them to feel this as well because we're all people. But God says nothing in his word about necessarily fulfilling what our fleshly wants are. He might, but that doesn't mean he's going to. We all have big plans. As you're sitting there listening to me this morning, you're thinking about what you want to accomplish in life, what you hope to see happen. But you have no guarantee, unless it's spirit-driven and that God is behind the whole thing. The truth is, beloved, God created us to glorify himself. That's really it. And we've talked about that many times before. But God created you and me to glorify himself. That's the main purpose. And what that means is, is that the pressures, the struggles that we go through in this life are not about us. They're really not. They're not about us as much as they are about pointing us to him. That's really the purpose in everything that God does in our lives. He wants to prove to us and show us how much we need him. 
That we really are not destined to live this life on our own. That we surrender to him in all of our issues in life and glorify him so that we are putting our confidence in him, not in ourselves. If we put our confidence in ourselves, beloved, we will surely fall quickly and rapidly and the fall will be great. And we've watched that over the years with many, many people. We have lots of examples of that in the scriptures. All too often we and people biblically get lost in their desires and what they want and feel what they need in life is important and begin to follow that trail and it ends up spiraling out of control, whether it's some kind of relationship. You know, we've all had desires for relationships. We've all had desires for things. We've all had desires for some want and we get emotionally charged in those things. Our feelings get elevated or we get drained Either way, because we think this life is about us, again, and what we can accomplish, again. But the truth is, this life, let me just say it again, is about God. The quicker we get that in our heads, that this life is about God and what He wants, the more peace that we will have and the more He will put Himself on display. You see, there's really no room for God and us in the same room when we're vying for the, for the platform. Is that clear? I hope you understand what I mean by that. God has said throughout his word, especially when he was raising up Israel, he says, look, there's not going to be any other gods. I'm the only one. And that includes each of us. He's not going to abdicate his throne for us for what we want. He is going to bring glory to himself. And this is why Jesus said about our lives, and I want you to see this on the board. I hope we can put that up on the screen. Just a very familiar passage. We'll get to this in uh, the next couple centuries. Who knows? Um, But listen to what Jesus said, foundational for our lives. Do not be worried about your life. You hear what the Lord's saying? Do not be worried about your life. And he goes on to explain as to what you will eat or what you'll drink. And we have those conversations, don't we? Honey, do you go to the grocery store? Well, I'm hungry. Um, What about the job? What about the bills? I mean, we have those kind of conversations. Jesus says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about your body as to what you're going to put on. Is life not worth more than that? And then he gives this beautiful illustration. Hey, look at the birds out there. They don't worry about their lives, but your heavenly Father takes care of them. Don't worry about the fields and the grass. Look across the field, the street over there, and you see the grass and the fields, and nobody's tending it. The Lord just raises it up. Somebody comes along, cuts it down, and the Lord brings it back up again. And that's Jesus' point here. Look what he says in verse 32. For the Gentiles, he's talking about the people that don't know God. They eagerly seek all these things. The world is just a rat race, running around trying to figure out how they're going to meet the next end. But he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God knows you're hungry. He knows what you have need of, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There it is. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and look, all these things will be added to you. Does that mean that God's going to give us everything we want? No but he will give us what we need. So, verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have enough cares for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Boy, what a message. What a a home run from the Lord. Don't worry. Don't worry. Listen, you realize what Jesus is saying? He's saying you literally have nothing to worry about. Nothing. Very foundational. The emphasis being on God himself because he knows what we need. In fact, 
the Lord will teach us that worry is sin. It's sin because it looks to us to fill the need instead of trusting him. And God says, you can't please me. You can't live in my biblical mandates. You can't follow my principles. You can't live for me if you're trying to figure all this out. Now, that doesn't mean God just wants us to sit on a stump and look at the stars all day and night. We've got to be involved in this whole process. But what he did say is, spend your days seeking my kingdom and my righteousness. So we should wake up every morning, and I'm talking to my heart here, we should wake up every morning and saying, Lord, thank you for the day that you've given me. How can I see your righteousness today? How can I see your kingdom in all of this? And you see how easily we get lost in the middle of this line? It's just amazing. Well, so let's go back now to chapter 4 because this section is going to show us the power, as I said earlier, of Jesus to overcome the temptations in life. And he's going to give us several of these, not by our own means, but by his ability to do that. Now, because he overcame them, as we're going to see through this, he can identify, and listen carefully, he can identify with every temptation that we experience. You should really mark that down. He can identify with every single pain, every struggle that you may encounter in life's journey. Let's name some of them. Loneliness. You ever felt lonely? Jesus knows what loneliness is all about. His best friends, his disciples abandoned him in his greatest time of need. He knows what it's like to be lonely. Loneliness is rampant in our nation, among the world. People were built to have companionship of some sort. And there are lots of people who are lonely. Jesus understands that loneliness. Fear. Jesus, as God, understands what fear is all about, which is, by the way, at the foundation of most everything we are, we are troubled over. You say, well, where did he fear? You remember when he was in the garden? He said, Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, would you let this cup pass from me? In other words, can we just do this a different way? And I have to believe that there was that humanness of Jesus as fully God, he was fully God and fully man, felt the fear that we fear at times. He knew abandonment. Right? As I said, relationships that are gone bad. Judas, primary example. Here's a man that was the keeper of the treasury, the one who was the, in the middle of the, the 12 there, and he abandoned Jesus very specifically. He understood the death of a loved one and the temptations that that can bring, the fear that can come from that. You remember Lazarus? Jesus wept for Lazarus. He understands the pain of these things. Inferiority, he felt that. He was God. Listen, he was God, but he, he felt the world hated him. He knew what that was like. If you've ever felt that kind of thing where the people in the crowd just looked at you with disdain, Jesus understands that. And on and on it goes. He knows what it means to feel unattractive. You say, really? How do you know that? Scripture tells us. Look at Isaiah 53. When the, Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, before Jesus ever came on the scene physically, here's what he said about him. He has, in verse 2, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Notice this. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Amazing, isn't it? What that tells me is that Jesus was not a person who physically stood out in the crowd. 
he probably felt the same feelings that a lot of people feel when they look in the mirror and say, oh, woe is me. Shame on my parents. I mean, whatever it might be, you know. Jesus understands these things. He understands what it's like to be the first parent that has a wayward child. You remember Adam and Eve? I mean, they certainly weren't perfect, were they? They didn't listen to him. They disobeyed. He knows what it's like to have children that fight all the time. Hello? Mom and dads know what that's all about. Well, Cain killed his brother Abel. And, you know, that didn't just come as a result of him getting upset on one day. That was a building kind of a thing over the years. There was a hatred in Cain's heart for his brother. The Lord understands all this. He knew what it was like to be poor. Some people complain all the time about their money, what I have, what I don't have. Look at the next guy. Man, I wish my life was like that. Why hasn't God done that for me? You hear how the temptation goes back to God? You say, how do you know he was, was poor? Luke brings it up. Luke 2.52. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Luke 9. Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but you know what? The Son of Man has nowhere even to lay his head. He didn't even have a bed. You go home tonight and you lay your head down on your pillow and you say, thank you, Lord. The Lord, when he was here, didn't even have a bed to sleep on. He knows what it's like to be poor. He understood the frustrations of what it meant to learn. Now, school and I, we just didn't get along real well. When I was in school, I was just like, you know what, I'd rather be on the riverbank riding the boat or fishing. Jesus understood that. I didn't know it at the time. And Luke, he brings it up. This is what I was going to say a minute ago in verse two, uh, chapter 252. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. In other words, he had to study. He had to do homework. He had to do those dreaded research papers. He had to do math problems, I'm assuming. I like this too. He knows what it means to go through the growth process. I'm talking about physically. As a kind of tall guy, I know the pains of growth pains. I was in the hospital actually in traction for three weeks because my bones were growing faster than my muscles could keep up with. That's a fact. It was painful. And I think you say, well, does Jesus understand that pain? Yeah, he does, because he had to learn. He was a baby. He had to grow up. He had to experience these things. He had to learn how to hold a fork, right? Had to learn how to drink out of a straw. You say, I didn't know they had all these things. Yeah, they did. You just look in the back. Look, go to the back of your Bible, and you'll see all this. I'm kidding about that part. Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to help us to see that there's really not as big of a gap between Jesus' life and our life as much as we might think it is. How about this? Let's go back to the older thing. He understood what it was like to get older, to feel all of that. People didn't live any longer than they do now at this point in history. So at age 30, he had worked hard. He'd lived hard. I'm sure he understood what it was like to feel sore and tired in his body. You wake up in the morning now and your best friend is a hot shower. So you can just get limbered up, so you can pick up your fork, so you can eat breakfast. Socially, he wasn't the coolest kid in school. Even his brothers didn't believe in who he was, according to John chapter 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him until after the resurrection. His own family didn't believe in who he was. You think that didn't bring some pain into his life? Some struggles? I guess this is the bottom line. If we just go to Hebrews chapter 4, this covers the whole thing. 
when we think about being tempted, he was tempted. And listen, and I really hope this will sink in for you this morning. He was tempted with the exact same thing that you have been tempted with in this life. You say the exact same thing in some way the Lord knows. You say, how do we know that? This is what the writer tells us in chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, Jesus, who has been tempted, notice here it is, in all things as we are. So whenever you're thinking, Jesus doesn't understand, you better come back to verse 15 of chapter 4. Because what the Spirit is saying is, no matter what it is that you've never told a soul in your life that's painful in your heart, Jesus has experienced it. He can identify with you. That's what we're told. And by faith, we believe what the Lord has said to us. I mean, this is good stuff, right? Praise the Lord for who he is. All right, now that we have that understanding, let's look at this first part here. To understand how he overcame all these temptations, the first thing we need to understand is that there are times where God allows, and this is the first part in our outline, even appoints times of testing. Verse 1, then Jesus was led up, notice, by whom? By the Spirit. Wasn't Satan dragging him up there? The Spirit of God led him up there. God himself led Jesus up into the wilderness, for what reason? To be tempted by the devil. Okay, Very purposeful on God's part. And again, there are times when God will purposefully test you and me. He does it according to his divine plan, which is always to grow our faith. Notice Genesis 22.1. Let's just look at a couple things here. We won't go through all these. I'll make mention of them. But this is how God says it. The first time it really appears came about after these things. This is God dealing with Abraham. It says that God tested Abraham. God tested him. Came a time for that. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, don't turn to these, just mark them down if you like. When Moses is giving the information to the people, he says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Notice that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He did that for Israel. In Exodus 15, 22 through 25, Moses led the people to the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness. There was no water found for them. And they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed them a tree, and he threw it in the waters, and the waters became sweet. And there he made for them a statute and a regulation. Notice this, and there he tested them. He tested them. When Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, the people were greatly afraid, the context tells us, because of all that they were seeing and God was really revealing himself. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. There it is. God brings about testing in order to build our faith so that we may not sin. So let's not be confused about what we're talking about here and make sure that we understand. Anytime you see the word tempt in English in the translation, it either has one of two meanings. It either means a time of testing for good or it means a time of testing to tempt. It depends on who the author of the subject is. If it's God, God always brings about testing to grow us in a positive way. 
God never tempts. In fact, we're told that in Scripture. But Satan, he will always do what he does to bring about something that's going to cause us to fall. That's one of the ways you can tell what's really happening here. James 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Listen, what are we saying? Whatever you're experiencing right now, whatever I'm experiencing right now, that Jesus understands he is allowing it to endure, cause endurance in you, to build you up. James will say, and then let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what God wants. He wants us to be everything he created us to be. But you can't do that. He can't do that unless he puts us through times of testing. The problem is we usually want to run from it, right? Going to school, it was test day. First thing we'd say is, oh, um, do I have to take the test today, ma'am, teacher? Miss Snodgrass, whatever your name was, you know, Miss Percy Blessings, I don't know what your teacher's name was. Do I really have to take, um, well, you've known about it for a week, right? So, yeah, you got to take the test. Oh, I'm not ready for the test. Can I just do it another day? That's kind of how we act with God. I don't really like this, but God says, listen, if you'll just trust me, I'm building endurance in you so that you can face the things that I want you to face. James will also say, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. How about that? And he himself does not tempt anyone. Now that's such an important statement. Because again, we will often feel the pressure of life. And we will start saying things like, yeah, man, I know God can do this. I know he can fix this, but... Why aren't you doing that, God? Maybe you're not really as strong as you say you are. Maybe you're really not everything that you've promoted yourself to be. You see how those little thoughts begin to just penetrate into the mind and heart? And it can happen to the best of us. We're not, any of us, immune to this. It can happen to all of us. Now, James, clarifying, will go on and say, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. In other words, the sin that is in our own hearts, when it is brought to life, gives birth to sin, and then sin is accomplished and brings forth death. That's what happens. We sin, beloved, against God because it's in our hearts. A lot of times Satan doesn't even have to work very hard. He just uses what's already there and just kind of sprinkles his little pixie dust all over it. And then we just do something worse. But it's our own sinful lust that causes us to be open to his tempting power. And when we give in, that's when the problems all come about. So now in Matthew's example, the father here is using all of this to prove, again, who Jesus is and who he claims to be. But Satan is trying to get Jesus to fail. So when the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, the first thing that Satan throws at him is the second part of our thing here is that a challenge, he challenges him in his humanity. He challenges him in his humanity, in his flesh, because Satan knows that the flesh is easily manipulated. Jesus later is going to say to his disciples when they're asleep in the garden, look, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is pretty weak. Right? How many of you all have desired to do great things for God? How many of you desire to just be everything God wants you to be? But praise the Lord. But how many times has your flesh overrun you? And it doesn't get accomplished. 
Happens all the time, doesn't it? Right now. You want me to call you out? Right now, your eyes are heavy. You're sleepy. Because what? The flesh is weak. Right? You're all sitting here, and I know this, I'm saying this lovingly, you're all sitting here saying, I want to hear what God has to say. That's why you're here. You didn't waste your time this morning to get up just to cause, come here to go to sleep. I mean, maybe somebody did, okay? But you're feeling the effects of your flesh. And Jesus would be saying the same thing right now. Hey, look, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is very weak. And so Satan attacks us in that way. He's going around right now, going across the pews, sprinkling his little pixie dust on you, saying, just go to sleep, just go to sleep. It's fine. The preacher will stop talking in a minute. It's fine. It's great. Awesome that you're here. Hey, you're here, right? Celebrate that, but just go to sleep. You don't need to worry about it. That's, that's what happens. Paul said in this incredible passage in Romans chapter 7, he talks about his own flesh. He says, In my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing is not good. I fail. I want to, but I fail. Just being so honest. He says, verse 21, I find in the principle that is evil is in me, the one who wants to do good. I, I agree with the law in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. In other words, there's this raging conflict that's going on. It's just eating me up. My heart wants to, but my flesh just battles against it all the time. And listen, beloved, Satan knows that. Don't you think for a second he doesn't know the weakness of our flesh. He watches us. Again, he doesn't have to do a lot. All he's got to do is pay attention. And he'll say, oh, so-and-so, you know, they like to do this about this time of day. And so let's just kind of throw something in there, get them all tripped up, get them all worried, anxious, irritated about something. All right, in verse, four, verse 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Everybody heard of the word hangry? It's from the devil. A time in the day when blood sugar gets low, your mouth starts thinking about how good lunch is going to be. I'm talking to all you who didn't have any breakfast this morning. Those of you who didn't go down to the fellowship hall down there, get a little sustenance before you came in here to listen to this message. See, you didn't know the message was going to be about this. If you had, you'd had blood sugar raised up. But you know what it's like to have low blood sugar, and so you start getting hangry. And it causes all kinds of problems. Listen, relationships have been hurt. Future lives have been affected because somebody got hungry. Now tell me that's not true. You have said things, done things, acted in certain ways because you were hungry. We have friends of ours that have said to each other, anytime they're getting ready to have a conversation with each other, they make sure that they've both eaten. And one of them inevitably will say, I don't need to eat anything. Yeah, you do. See there? No, I'm fine. No, you need to eat, and then we'll talk about it. Well, there's a biblical example of a guy who blew it big time. In Genesis chapter 25, you've heard of him, Jacob's brother Esau. Let's just read the story here in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man in the field, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. 
Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Can you identify with that, guys? And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Well, first sell me your birthright. Mmm, a little swindling, a little haggling going on here. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. In other words, I am so hungry. So what use is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, Well, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, folks, listen, we don't understand this really in our culture, but in the Hebrew culture, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. That was like saying to dad, you know what, all of our genealogy that is behind us, I'm not going to carry on because I don't want anything to do with it. That was unheard of. But because the man's stomach was hungry, he gave it all up just so he could have a five-minute meal. Satan greatly was involved in all of that. And it shows up in us the same way. Our flesh is so weak. We don't want the pain of life. Again, looking for whatever gratifies us. Just do whatever i got to do to remove all the pains in life. I told somebody the other day, man, I'd make an awesome drug addict. Now listen carefully. <laughs> I hate, listen, I hate pain. I, I do. When my joints get sore and stiff, Advil has become my best friend. Now, I'm not dumb enough to realize that if I keep doing that, it's going to not be a problem. I realize that. And I don't pop them every five minutes. I mean, I go weeks in between. I'm just saying, it's nice being pain-free, isn't it? Right? Let's just be honest. It's nice having a day where you're not filled with some kind of pain. So what we'll do is we'll gravitate towards anything that takes away the pain. The common ones are drugs, alcohol, sex. People get addicted to that. Pornography, why? Because it's a stimulant that covers the pain. That's all it's all about. To be noticed among my peers. To be the best at everything I can be the best at. To be the best owner of a business. To be the best athlete. Whatever it might be. A lot of that stuff is just to cover up the pain of life. People will often spend thousands of dollars on makeup and clothing and houses and cars and everything that they can think of to appease the flesh, to get rid of the pain. I don't know if you remember the name Derek uh, Rodman. Um, no, what's his name for the... Dennis Rodman. There was a little uh, video show on him the other night. What a mess. Fantastic basketball player. Played most of his latter years for the Chicago Bulls when they won five championships when Michael Jordan played. I know I'm talking over the head of some of these younger people, but um, his life is just a mess, just full of pain, millions of dollars, but just seeking for somebody to offer him some kind of approval. So tragic, so tragic. And you just kind of find situations like that saying, just, let, me, let me just tell you about Jesus. He knows what you're experiencing. He knows what you need. Satan is trying to trap you in his wicked trap and do everything he could. Now, what Satan did, if you look at the text carefully, he waited. 
until Jesus was really good and hungry. Notice how it writes, it's read there. He waited until he was hungry. Evidently, Jesus wasn't that hungry during the whole fast. So Satan waited until he was good and hungry at his weakest point because he knew then he could manipulate him. All right, now, let's keep going here. We're almost done. Notice the next challenge. The tempter came and said to him in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, there's a loaded question. In other words, when Jesus was at his lowest physical point, Satan challenges his identity. He challenges his identity. Satan used his flesh, Jesus' flesh of hunger against him to break down who he claimed to be. If Esau was willing to give up his birthright, then maybe, just maybe, I can convince Jesus to give himself up when he's at his weakest point and have him go against who he says he is to be, who he really is. And again, that's when we feel the pressure the most, when we're physically exhausted. I guess the simple message in all of that is, whatever you're facing right now, just as a kind of a side note, make sure that you're getting the rest you need. I mean, sound like Dr. Oz or something, but there's a lot to be said about this. And we make some really poor decisions in spiritual life, I'm talking about, when we're not well rested. Notice, back to the text, what he says in his question, kind of similar to what he used with Adam and Eve in the garden when he said, did God really say? I mean, that's how he approached Eve. Did God really say this was the deal? He does the same thing here, challenging Jesus' identity by saying, did God really say, you really are the Son of God? I mean, after all, if you really are the Son of God, then... Here's some stones that would easily turn into bread if you just do that. I mean, if you really are who you say you are. And here's what he does to us. He comes along and he says, Hey, you Laurel Hill people, are you really born again? Are you really a child of the king? I mean, that guy that calls him a king? I mean, that Jesus that people kind of question? You follow that guy? I mean, you know, the rest of the world is having a fun Sunday afternoon and you're in that building listening to some preacher talk about stuff that doesn't make any sense at all. Are you really a follower of this Jesus guy? You see how it begins and it just kind of starts ramping up? And we start buying it. And I tell you how we buy it is that we begin to fail to live the life that Jesus says we're supposed to live. That's where it starts breaking down. Or in a marriage, he says things like, Did God really say you have to submit to your husband? We talked about this on Wednesday night. You want to come to a good study, come on Wednesday night. We're getting into the thick of some things. Did he say you really have to love your wife or when you're going through challenges with your spouse? The flesh is pretty weak and you're hungry for attention and your gratification from each other is not there and so you begin to look outwardly. You start finding people that will say things that are nice to you that you wish your spouse would say to you. And you start going, wow, that guy's not so bad. That woman's not so bad. That boy, that girl's not so bad. Or, hey, you know, this drug is not so bad. You ought to try it. Buy that thing. Fulfill your appetite. We see it all over the place. Let me just touch on this because it's such a huge issue. The gay community. Now, God loves everybody, but he doesn't love the sin. 
But listen to the temptation here. Did God really make you a man or a woman? You hear the same question? It's the same question, just repackaged. Did God really say you were a man? Aren't you supposed to be a woman? Did God really say you're a woman? Aren't you really supposed to be a man? Did God really say you could only marry a person of the opposite sex? Is that what he really said? Or did God really say love was only between a male and a female? Did God really say you had to either be one or the other? You couldn't be both? Did God really say you couldn't have marriage with just one person? Why not two or three at the same time? That's becoming a big issue again if you're watching the trending news right now. You see, the temptation here is that God came to rescue us from the temptations of our flesh and the demise of our flesh and the power of Satan so that we would live with him in eternity and to put his spirit in us so that we could have right thinking in this life. But people are very, very upset in their thinking and we will fall victim to the same thing if we're not very, very careful. So the point is Satan will wait until we are at our weakest point. He has more patience than anybody. He'll wait until you're struggling your most and he'll begin to plant doubt, wear you down little by little, causing your sinfulness to challenge your identity. And over a lifetime, through all those challenges and circumstances, until we're at our weakest and most vulnerable part, getting us to somehow believe that God is not who he says he is. And he can't really help you. So just fix it yourself. Fix it yourself. In Jesus' situation, Satan wanted to say, yeah, that's right. I'm God. I can feel my hunger. I don't need to wait on my Father. That's what he wanted Jesus to say. Don't wait on your Father. You can do this. Just take matters into your own hand. But Jesus knew that would be disobedience, and it would violate everything that Jesus stood for. So Satan says, if you're really God's son, then command these stones to become bread. But look what Jesus said. It is written. Don't you love that? Here's what he's saying. In the word of the Lord, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word. Every word. In other words, the hungers of this life are not up to you and me to fulfill. It's not up to Jesus to fulfill at this particular point. That's reserved for God the Father. That's what Jesus was saying. I am in subservience to him at this point. I'm here on this earth to do his will. And to prove my role in obeying him. And the same is true for us, beloved. When we obey the Father, Philippians 4.19, most of you have this memorized. God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. God will do it. Unless we try to push too hard. Matthew will write this in chapter 6. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions that the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. How about that? The Lord already knows. He already knows what you have need of. And what Jesus' point here is, is that we are to never compromise anything that the Father has told us, especially His Word. Especially His Word. Again, I could go on and on about this, you know that, but people compromise and people will say, well, I love this statement. I know God says this in the Bible, but... See, there's the trap. There's the, there's the noose. 
What we need to say is like Jesus, no, Satan, God has said, this is the way I am to live. This is the way I'm to respond. That's the end of the story. That's all Jesus had to say to him. Nope. Yes, could I do this? I'm not going to because God has said, I'm not to live on that. But everything that God tells me. So the central motive of our lives, beloved, should be whatever God wants is what I want. Whatever whatever he wants as a church, that's what we want. That's what we're going to do. And that's why we have and will continue to put all of our emphasis on the word of the Lord. John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. The world is desperately searching for truth. And Jesus said, you want truth? It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Go to him and he can fix it. Okay? Your bucket full? That's a lot. But let's pray now and let's just ask the Lord to penetrate all this stuff in our hearts because we're going to need it this week. Listen, we're talking about bringing a guy in to talk about spiritual warfare. You think who doesn't like that? That's right. We don't need to be afraid. We have no need to be afraid of anything, but we need to be on our guard. We need to be smart. We need to have our full armor on, knowing that we can be vulnerable to Satan. We've got to protect ourselves in our weak moments. And trust the Lord for what he said to us. Stay in the word, beloved. Stay in the word, stay in the word, stay in the word, stay in the word. It's your only protection. And it's sufficient. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Very full. Lots of things to celebrate. Lots of things to be excited about. And we know that we have a mortal enemy. Your mortal enemy. Lord, as we're talking about sending Christmas boxes across the world, over a thousand of them, that gets the attention of somebody like Satan. As we talk about spiritual warfare and exposing him, that gets his attention. He doesn't care, Lord, you know. He doesn't care if we just keep this all inside the building and just enjoy our warm fuzzies with each other and celebrate within the building. But as soon as we step outside the building, he's going to have something to say about it. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be wise. Help us to stay in your word and to keep putting it deep in our hearts. And and not fearfully, we have no need to be afraid, for he's a defeated foe. But we we do need to be careful. So help us, Lord, as we go into the work week this week, that we might rejoice in everything that you've done. This, This life should be a day and a time of rejoicing every day, knowing that our names have been written down in the book of life. And so, Lord, as we get discouraged and tempted and feel the pressures of life, may we remember the truth that this life is but a vapor, and then we will be with you forever and forever. So, Lord, let joy come from our hearts and from our mouths, and may our minds resonate with the praises in our hearts to you as we live out every day. Thank you, Father, for trusting us, and thank you for living your word through us as we take it out into the world. And Lord, help the heart that's needing you most this morning, whatever that need may be, help them to just be honest with you. If it's salvation or if it's just some pressing need, Lord, may they be open and honest that we might bring it before your throne together. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake and all God's people said, amen. All right.